Thanks for joining me today on DesignWise. I'm your host, Jessica Shabbat. My conversation today was with Boston architect J.B. Clancy of the architectural firm Albert, Ryder, and Titman. J.B. is a very thoughtful and knowledgeable architect, and I really enjoy talking to him, so I hope you enjoy listening. Let's go to that conversation now. All right. Hi, J.B. Good morning or good afternoon. How are you? Good. <laughs> Um, so we thanks for joining me today. Sure. So I usually like to start this um, podcast with a really simple question of where did you grow up? Ha. I grew up in Lake George, New York, which is northern New York State, not upstate because that's just north of New York City, <laughs> but northern New York State um, in the southern Adirondacks. So is that like the Finger Lakes area? No, it's uh, just south of Lake Champlain. So closer to the Vermont and Canadian border. Oh, so way up yeah, in New York. Yeah, way up. Okay. And um, it was a place that actually had a curious mixture of old buildings from the 19th century, it being a resort. Um, a popular resort in the 19th century was filled with all these large houses um, that had actually, for the most part, been turned into motels. So there was this kind of curious mixture of these old, large 19th century summer, quote unquote, cottages, um, which had been kind of surrounded by these 1950s motels. Um, But it always kind of, for me, uh, you know, provided a really interesting kind of landscape to grow up in just because it had this really rich history of houses. So did you know anybody that was an architect when you were a child? Um, I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know an architect, but my mom was an art teacher. Okay. And she would, you know, give me drawing classes and such. And she liked to talk about architecture mm-hmm. and point things out to me as we were kind of driving around. And I think, well, she told me this. She always probably wanted to be an architect, but never was Mm -hmm. so um you know i think it was something that that you know she would talk to me a lot about as a kid so did you how did you end up deciding you wanted to go to school for architecture then so um well like i said i I think just maybe through my mom or others i was definitely always interested in architecture but um i went to a ski academy in vermont for high school Mm -hmm. which didn't really have an extensive art program um so in high school, I kind of dabbled on my drafting board, trying to copy Frank Lloyd Wright drawings <laughs> as a way of learning, and, um, but knew I wasn't ready to go right to architecture school coming out of high school. So I spent time in college kind of studying architectural history mm-hmm. and kind of really got to know and love architecture through the history of architecture. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in college that I then decided I'd like to do more than just study it. I'd like to be part of making it. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to architecture school. So where did you go to college? So I went to undergrad at Brown University and they have a, uh, what they call an architectural studies program. And I was able to take architectural history classes, classes in sociology. I cross-registered and took some classes at RISD, drawing classes and Mm -hmm. such. So I kind of you know, at Brown, you can kind of make your own major. Mm-hmm. So I was able to kind of collect a bunch of like-minded classes and mm-hmm. call it architecture. Um, but then after that, I went to architecture school at Yale. Mm-hmm. 
which is very impressive. <laughs> there are a lot of very good architecture schools out there. <laughs> it's definitely an excellent one. Um, but I, I think uh, there, it's interesting, there are a lot of ways actually to learn about architecture too. I mean, the school route is, is definitely one. But I found getting out of school, you're still learning about architecture. It's just, it's kind of an endless process because the profession itself is so rich. And there's always so much to learn and know mm-hmm. that you're never... The learning curve never flattens out. So you had three years in school, but you know the real education I think occurs when you're out practicing. Well, so and then what did you do once you graduated from Yale? Did you go right into a practice or? So I didn't actually. My first job out of architecture school was a very large planning project. New York City was wanted to put a bid together for the 2008 Summer Olympic Games. Oh, interesting. And I joined a classmate of mine and a professor of mine from Yale to mm-hmm. put that bid together and to do the master plan for it. And for a while after that, I, we came up to Boston and I worked for Aero Street, a large mm-hmm. kind of commercial firm in town. And I really felt like I wanted to do this large scale planning work. Um, but I was invited to uh, an event at Albert Ryder and Tippmann. They were doing a slideshow of Jacob Albert's photos that he'd taken on a recent trip. And the instant I walked into the office, I actually knew, no, I think I'd rather be working on houses in a place like Albert Ryder and Tippmann. Yeah. So, um, and then when I thought more about my first interest in architecture, I kind of mentioned, you know, I always sit there on my little drafting board and copy those Frank Lloyd Wright drawings, Mm -hmm. that it really was the house scale building that had really attracted me to architecture initially. And, um, And I felt like I wanted to start so do you think that just that. because you started doing that Olympic bid project, it essentially kind of made a path for you that you were just going down as far as like planning? And then when you met somebody who was more, I guess, inspiring or a firm that was doing stuff that spoke to your original nature, you just how quickly did you shift focus? Yeah, I mean, I guess I definitely knew once I entered, you know, the offices of ART that that I wanted to work in a place like that. But I wouldn't say that I was just following the path of planning because I continue to be interested in larger Mm -hmm. kind of planning projects or at least just reading about them and following them. Um, And that's what I love about architecture is you can interact with it from the scale of a large city plan to a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'm interested in all scales. Mm -hmm. So even while we've been here at ART, we've had the opportunity to do some slightly larger work than houses, more kind of on the planning end. Mm -hmm. And I found that incredibly rewarding. So it's kind of nice to be able to do all scales. That's Um, interesting. That's an interesting perspective, especially because I think it's really easy to get pigeonholed into one type of architecture. But really, you're right. Like there's so much more involved in, you know, how communities feel and you know how you experience architecture and even where you came from. Like you came from some place where there was something inspiring. I imagine though, coming from a small small town, right? Yeah. That and now you live in Boston, right? Or, yeah, that it must be a big. Is that a big? Was that a big shift, or you just love the city? That was a shift, but <laughs> but I think after growing up in northern New York State in Vermont. Uh, I was interested in living in a city, um, and Boston has been the perfect city because mm-hmm. it has a wonderful history, 
a very walkable scale, rich architectural heritage. Um, and uh, if you need to escape to the mountains, it's not that hard. <laughs> right. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit because I have done some research on ART and it seems like you guys really prize sustainability as um, something you kind of strive for and maybe even educate clients about. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Everybody talks about, you know, green building and that sort of thing, but Hmm. I think it'd be interesting to hear from your perspective what that means. Sure. Yeah, I think um, it's, uh, you know, sustainable green. There are all these current buzzwords Mm -hmm. that, that you hear pretty much applied to everything now I and there's no product out there that's not trying to present itself as environmentally friendly and in a way that green movement has forced a lot of companies to really change the way they make things so I do think things have gotten better our approach kind of comes at it from a couple different ways I had mentioned the kind of history interest in history before Um, and if you think about buildings before fossil fuels Mm -hmm. the forms that were developed to heat and cool buildings or to keep them comfortable before we could inject AC and heating into them. Um, It was really the architecture that kind of did the work. The architecture was the primary kind of environmental control system. And uh, from the standpoint of sustainability, if your interest is to lower energy consumption, it's interesting to think about those original building forms and how they kind of, they helped you know, keep those buildings cooler or keep helped retain heat before we could kind of heat and cool them with mechanical equipment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, if from a standpoint of sustainability, if we're interested in lowering our energy consumption, you know, we kind of look toward the building first to do that, the shape of the building and how the eaves can block summer sun but allow winter sun in or how the orientation of the building by facing the sun and allow more daylight in or more direct energy. Um, from a kind of more technical standpoint, our, the practice of, I guess, sustainability in the office kind of started in 2009 when I enrolled in this class to become a passive house consultant. Hmm. So we had been given the opportunity to do a project in the office and the client was interested in a quote unquote passive solar house. And I started doing research on that and found this kind of green building program, if you will, um, out of Germany called Passive House, which was a way of creating very highly insulated buildings that um, used very little energy to operate. Um, And so the focus was really primary and primarily on energy reduction. Okay. So not just a 10 or 20 or 30% energy reduction, like Energy Star may have been a 30% energy reduction over code. This was like 85 to 90% energy reduction over code. Wow. And they had a very, or they have a very precise way of kind of configuring the building, the wall section, the envelope, the orientation, and a piece of software that they've developed to analyze the energy consumption of the building. So I was in one of the early classes for that and became a certified passive house consultant. And then we got the opportunity to actually design a house for Habitat for Humanity up in Vermont. Nice. And it was the first certified passive house um, in Vermont. And we also had it built modular. So it was the first 
modular passive house in the country. Wow. And that's proven to be a really successful house for the family. It's mm-hmm. a mom and her two kids. It costs her like $35 a month in January to heat it. Holy and mom. now she has solar panels on it. So the solar panels cover all the energy wow. costs of the building. Um, but it, you know, it tries to look like a little Vermont farmhouse, mm-hmm. but it's got a, you know, a, a high performance engine inside of it, um, which, which, uh, you know, keeps it from not consuming a lot of energy. So does it cost more to build a passive house? Um, th- there's definitely an increase in cost cause there's going to be more insulation. Um, the windows are likely more expensive. Uh, there are some components like a ventilation system. Um, which you'd want to be careful about and get a very good one. Um, so, you know, there is a premium, but uh, the energy consultant I was working on this project with, his name is Peter Schneider, he did like a cost analysis of it. And if you kind of amortize out the upfront costs over the course of, you know, the mortgage or something, it would mm-hmm. you kind of pay for that increased initial cost and the energy savings mm-hmm. for the building. And a lot of buildings now too, I mean, Buildings are getting tighter and tighter just because we have all these products that we're using. So you actually need ventilation now. Mm -hmm. So that's no longer an extra. You're going to have to put it in anyway. Um, And the the codes are increasing. So insulation values are having to go up too. So I think the the delta is is coming down. Um, But really the the principle of a passive house is a super insulated building oriented toward the sun. Um, but controlling the sun with shading and such so mm-hmm. it doesn't overheat in the summer. Um, and it's a very kind of airtight volume with you know high efficiency heat recovery ventilation system. Mm. But, you know, so those components we've used in all of our houses now. I mean, I would say every house gets that kind of same attention. They may not be truly certified passive houses, but we're really looking toward that technology as a way to um, make all of our buildings consume less energy and um, uh, anyway. So I generally think of like a green or a passive house as being a much more modern aesthetic, but I'm guessing you're going to say that's not the case. Right. Well, again, yeah, I mean, just because it's green doesn't mean it has to look like a machine. <laughs> um, and uh, And this gets back to my comment earlier about buildings before fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's interesting is you think about so a, a salt ha- a salt box building out on Lexington from the 1780s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's lasted hundreds of years, uh, so that's sustainable in itself, right? right? The fact that the building hasn't rotted away, yep. um, and that form, you know, is is ideal if you want to face it toward the sun. Mm-hmm. So because it has this tall two-story element um, one side and there are a bunch of salt box buildings out in Lexington on the on Concord on the um, on the, the National Park kind of battlefield road road and there are a series of them in every single one of those salt box buildings the big facade faces south mm-hmm. so you know it's interesting the choices that they made when they could put the building wherever they wanted in the shape of the building they chose if you think about a building down in Louisiana it would never have that form mm-hmm because it would just bake in the summer. So they have buildings with big roofs that extend way out beyond the walls to keep all that mm-hmm. hot sun out mm-hmm. and then a lot of ventilation so they can get air moving through it. 
So in and a I sense, a lot more porches too. and a lot more porches. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if you take those things and you start with that, given where you are, the climate and the location, you use those forms and then add other elements that, you know, passive house, uh, or other kind of high performance buildings look at, then it's going to actually be a lot easier <laughs> to consume less energy if you use the roof mm -hmm. to first stop the energy from getting in in Louisiana, or if you use the facade, like in the salt box, to bring the energy in in the summer. So, yeah, no, I don't think, in fact, I think the traditional forms are more suited toward reducing energy consumption because they evolved before we even had energy. Do most of your clients... Um actively participate in this line of thought or do you guys just factor that the passiveness or the energy efficiency and all the things you've talked about whether the client is concerned about that or not well we we talked to them about it mm -hmm. and um you know we never like just try and slip it in there kind right. of thing we always have conversations with them about it and the benefits um and the value of doing it um so they're always on board in terms of uh you know why we're doing it and why we're interested in it and why we think it's good for their project. Do you think there's going to be a natural turn from, say, larger, expansive houses down to kind of smaller footprints with the, as, you know, the millennial generation gets old enough to, you know, maybe build their own house? <laughs> well, that's a good question. What, you know, what is the housing of the future? Um, and, you know, single family houses are maybe not it. And I think you're starting to see, you know, people living in cities, people living in shared units. And from an energy standpoint, an apartment is inherently more efficient than a single family house because it has less exterior exposed to the mm -hmm. outside. So um, anyway, I think that's something we're interested in, too, is how does that translate into these larger multi-unit projects? Well, and I guess for your perspective, too, like how do you... Um if you were working on a multi-unit, say like one of the new sky, you know, skyscrapers going in and you know the harbor area, like how do you infuse a sense of history into a unit that is essentially pretty bare? I mean, essentially you see history out the windows because you're looking at Boston, right. but the space you're living in is does not have any of that. Right, yeah, that's a very good question, and uh, we haven't been given that challenge yet, mm -hmm. so. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe someone will hire us to do that. Well, maybe, maybe we'll see. You'll start seeing people reclaiming things from New Hampshire. Yeah, well, maybe. Exactly. Like your fireplace. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about your guys's um, photography and sketching. Mm -hmm. So it's a big part of your firm. I've seen examples of the sketching you do as well as um, some of the other, you know, your, some of your other colleagues. And then photography, you've mentioned that you saw a photography exhibit of uh, Jacobs, right? Jacob right, Alvin. correct, yeah. yeah. Um, so how, why is that important? So I think um, it relates to kind of observing the world around you, particularly architecture. <laughs> we are architects, right? So, um, you know, I think Jacob has traveled all over the world and has this amazing collection of images of buildings throughout and throughout time and in every continent. Um, and, you know, that's a real symbol of of his interest in going out and seeing things firsthand. Um, and for me and I think others in the office, the sketching is is a similar kind of impulse. Uh, 
you know, to go somewhere and to spend some time looking at one thing mm -hmm. um, and looking at it closely and long enough that you record it, you know, through a sketch. And, and that time spent with that building or in that place just helps, you know, inform, you know, oneself about the world around you. And I don't necessarily know when it comes out in the design work, but I think it's like a library of images and forms and experiences, you know, that one may tap into when you're working on a project here in, in Boston. Have you ever designed something um, new or renovated something and then after it was done, you're like, oh, that looks just like um, something I sketched once, but you maybe didn't place it until you saw the reference? Yeah. Or is it always very purposeful? Well, I think there are a lot of elements within probably the things that I've looked at that find their ways into buildings. I don't know if I could point to one and say, look, this equals that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what I look for when I'm drawing is the way light kind of moves across a form, um, the details in particular. One thing I think that we really focus on in this office are the details of how materials transition and the shapes of moldings and mm -hmm. how they catch light. And, um, and so to really know how those pieces are put together, sitting down and looking at them and drawing them is a really good way um, because someone's already built it, right? So you mm -hmm. can say, oh, is that successful or not? Or how does that vertical piece transition to a horizontal piece there? Oh, they use this shape to do that. Um, does that shape a supporting shape? like supporting the weight, say, of the roof, or is it meant to kind of distribute the weight onto the ground? So I think the act of just finding something and looking at it and recording it just helps me personally understand it better. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you're studying for a test, everyone always said, you know, you got to write it out if you want to remember it. <laughs> you can't just read it, you know. You gotta... So there's the act of recording it. And then not just looking at it, which is why I think the sketching is important. Mm -hmm. Because if I just ran in and snapped my iPhone three times and then ran to the next plaza and snapped my iPhone, mm -hmm. unless I went back and really spent time with those photos, I wouldn't have the same relationship to that building as if I sat there for 45 minutes and tried to draw it. That's a really interesting point, actually, because I don't think I've ever made the correlation between how much you miss when you just take a picture I actually am not um, a big picture taker of things because I I personally feel like you miss some things when you're just doing it through a phone like even um, like with my children like I have pictures of them but I'm not I'm not a big like all the time picture taker because mm -hmm. I want to remember the mm -hmm. experience and I want to have I feel like memories are really important and pictures are not the same thing as memories so but I think that's a really interesting point about if you have to physically stare at it and then translate it from your mind onto a piece of paper, you know, then it's your interpretation of what you're seeing as opposed to a carbon copy image on a photo, which is really not the same thing at all. Right, right. No, I completely agree. And it's that time spent looking at one thing I, that I personally think is richer than a quick look at 20 things. Right. Um, it's like a deep dive. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, I mean, just from a kind of 
traveling standpoint, I find it just you also experience the place differently. So it's not just the act of looking at the building and drawing it or the people, but because you've actually sat in one place for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. like you'll see things that you may not have seen because you're generally not sitting in one place for long enough or you'll hear conversations or you'll notice something about maybe not even the thing you're drawing, something else. So I think it's just a nice way to kind of move through with the world that also slows everything down. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were... Um recently had an exhibition at the Milton Public Library of Correct. their travel sketches. Correct. So yeah. that must have been a big honor. Yeah, no, that was it was fun. I'd never seen them all in one place. They were from two trips, uh, a trip to Venice and a trip to Paris, um, which I was lucky enough to join my wife on, who is a art professor at um, Boston University. Um, so they kind of represent two European cities and time spent in places in each of those cities just looking at the buildings did you focus on a particular um say genre in either of those places i mean those cities are so much older than boston right that's the one thing i'm always amazed at whenever i'm in europe is how much like we think boston's old and i we've talked i grew up in california which is not old at all (laughs) (laughs) so boston feels old for me but when you're in paris it's so obvious how it's not even close. Yeah. No, for me, um, I mean, I, I generally tended to draw things, yes, that were on the older end of the spectrum, but that wasn't necessarily my agenda. I just found them more interesting, mm-hmm. the forms themselves more interesting. So um, I found a, a dome more interesting to draw than a grid of glass. Mm-hmm. Um, although I did do a drawing of the Louvre which had a combination of um, Ian Pei's kind of glass pyramid mm-hmm. set against the the Versailles Palace. I mean, I mean the, the, the Louvre Palace behind it. So, and how do you, from an architectural standpoint, like, what do you, what are your, because that, you know, when Ian Pei designed that pyramid structure out of glass, was very controversial. It maybe still is, arguably. Although I think people have gotten used to it. Right, right. <laughs> but right. Um, from an architecture standpoint, what do you do? You have any thoughts about that structure, good or bad? Well, you know, I think I never really understood it, probably until I sat there and drew it, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, and I really, you know appreciated it a lot more after I really sat there and looked at it versus just thought of it as an idea. Oh, that's a pretty radical idea to put a glass pyramid in this courtyard. Um, I think, I think what, what makes it so successful is, you know, it isn't trying to compete with the other buildings in the Louvre. Um, you can actually see the buildings through it, the reflections of, um, of the buildings in it. And the form itself is a very kind of classical form. Mm-hmm. Pyramid is kind of the beginnings of architecture. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it, it feels very purposeful. And the simplicity of it doesn't try to compete which, with the, you know, almost overly ornate buildings of the Louvre. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it actually works quite well. Yeah, I was actually thinking about it the other day, and I was wondering if there was really no other building that could have gone there. Yeah, no, I mean, you think if you tried to do a building just like 
in the form of the ones around mm -hmm. it. I think, you know, that juxtaposition is what makes it successful. Well, and you're right. You would have covered up, you know, I have the benefit of looking at your sketch at the moment, but you would have, if something else, if it had been a different shape or form, it would have covered up what was already there. Right. And yeah. it would have, that would have probably been less pleasant. Yeah. Than... And I'm generally not of the mind where, you know, modern architecture has to be different and, and, you know, like a radical departure from what's mm -hmm. around it. I think you can do beautiful modern additions that are very sympathetic mm -hmm. to the building that it's going on. And maybe you won't even notice it's part of an addition. Mm -hmm. But this one in particular, I feel like that juxtaposition is what makes it very strong. Yeah, from an architectural standpoint, I can't actually, maybe you can, but I can't think of many other examples where you have two structures that are supposed to relate and in fact are in theory part of the same building that look so different. Right. Or yeah. very few yeah. examples. That work well too. Mm -hmm. Usually yes. they're just like, Oh, Jarring. there's the new yeah. <laughs> entry. <laughs> um, so, ART, you guys have, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you guys, in my opinion, have a much more academic or cerebral take on architecture. And it um, feels very comfortable to be around your space and kind of like reminds me of an old library. But... Mm -hmm. Um, how do you think that, I think it sets you apart from other architects and other architectural firms that really are much more kind of going with the flow of the river, meaning that, you know, they're much more maybe social media oriented or kind of, you know, quick producers of things. And yes, there's, it's probably good design, but they're much more inclined to say do five modern farmhouses in a year because that's what the client is you know, really, that's what's really popular and on TV, but it doesn't seem like you guys necessarily go that way. Right. Um, well, I appreciate your uh, observation because, uh, <laughs> you know, you never know how one sees oneself um, or how you're seen by the outside world. But uh, I think the firm kind of started, Jim Ryder was teaching at Yale um, and John and Jacob were also students there, and they studied under Charles Moore and, and others who had a real interest in the history of architecture and its role in shaping new buildings. And uh, I pointed out our library that kind of encircles the entire office. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's been a central kind of component of design and inspiration uh, from the beginning. And, um, you know, we, what I liked about your comment was, I guess there are ideas, but they're also comfortable mm -hmm. that we don't think those ideas should be intimidating either or inaccessible to, you know, the user. So, um, you know, the, the history of architecture brings with it the, the idea of space and form um, but we also want them to be accessible mm -hmm. and so they can be used and loved, not just, you know, uh, observed. Um, well, interesting, um, as we're, as I was listening to you just talk, one of the things I think that's so successful about your guys' work is that, is what makes, you know, places like you've been so successful is like you go to Paris or you go to Boston or 
And you don't really need a degree in architecture to know that it's beautiful and it's a good design. It doesn't require, yes, you can sit there and analyze it. And if you like doing that, you can. But you just know inherently it's good, right? Or, right. You know. It feels good. And I feel the same <laughs> way about your work. If anyone's listening wants to go to their website, you'll have the same familiarity. You know, even like your Greek revival interpretation, you know, it feels familiar, even though it's a newer structure and it's definitely been updated. It has a more... A slightly more you know modern take on some classic ideas but mm-hmm. it feels familiar like that's good like I, I like that because mm-hmm. you, you know it, it's part of the fabric of what you're looking at every right day. right yeah and we like to think of that then as that building is is in the kind of continuum of the language of architecture mm-hmm. so the reason idea. why you can relate to it is it's a language that you've heard before mm-hmm. um, but just like poetry uses the English language they're words you recognize but you can combine them in different ways to kind of evoke different meanings or things so we like to think of architecture as like that the words should be familiar you can understand them but if you combine them in a different way hopefully they become more than just a copy of the Greek Mm -hmm. revival building but they kind of become they transformed into something else and something new well, I think that's very successful. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're that's uh, <laughs> Again, it's not like we set out every project like, okay, here's the, we're going to take this and try and translate <laughs> it to that. But that gets to the kind of the travel and the observation and the kind of learning about architecture and then just the, you know, reacting to the world around you and then trying to make something new. Well, and if you're living it and breathing it and studying it and you're clearly like a perpetual student of right. architecture and art. <laughs> so then it becomes second nature. It's just like breathing. You know, someone comes in and they say, I want this. And you're like, oh, I know exactly. Or let's work on right. these forms. Do you still do a lot of hand sketching for clients? We do. Mm-hmm. Yep. All the early design drawings are all generally done by hand, especially any of the three-dimensional work. Um, we, we really like to use drawing as a way to explore the idea mm-hmm. and uh, present it um, but we think drawing is a very important part of the practice of architecture is that because you feel like it's more uh, flexible like as you're going it's easier and you can react more quickly to the ideas coming out of your head as opposed to say doing it on the computer which definitely has its practicalities sure but maybe it restricts the speed i guess at right which you can yeah, I think there's just a more natural flow between the brain and the hand than the brain and your hand on a mouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I watched younger architects coming out of school and they're kind of one with the computer. And so maybe they have a different reaction to it. But when I was in architecture school, we did everything by hand. Mm-hmm. The computers were down in the basement <laughs> in the computer lab. Um, but I still think even architects, younger architects, drawing is a a way to explore ideas quickly and i think more naturally um so yes we use drawing a lot mm-hmm. uh both kind of internally and as a way to present ideas do you have any thoughts about what the future of architecture is going to look like mm. <laughs> it's a really open-ended broad question but you can make it more narrow if you want no 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 it's fine um well, I mean, you know, you mentioned sustainability earlier. I mean, there's just, there's no question like, you know, with limited resources and energy, I think that is going to shape how people live and where they live. 
and then architecture will respond. Um, so, uh, you know, the future of, of buildings, you know, may be where they're located, not so much what they look like, mm -hmm. um, kind of higher densities. Uh, but it's, it's also interesting, too, in this kind of electronic communication age where place location is important, but maybe not like it was 100 years ago where you really had to be in downtown Boston if you wanted to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be, I don't know, sitting in a cabin in Maine. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, how will that impact buildings? I don't know. I know the car has had a huge impact on the built environment. Mm -hmm. A lot of the built environment now is scaled to the car, not to the pedestrian. And um, so... You know how will the way vehicles are used change spaces that's another thing too i mean if ride sharing or these kind of automated cars become more of a thing and you know you're able to get to a and b just by stepping into some driverless cab circling the city i'm waiting for holograms i'd really like to be okay. someplace there you go right exactly <laughs> So you have to sit in the car for four hours. Like, right. I have a meeting in California. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the teleporting. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think technology has always kind of influenced buildings and the built environment. So I think as technology evolves, that's going to continue to shape it. But I don't think you can ever for lose the language of architecture. Mm -hmm. And so I think that will also continue to play a role in how buildings look, this architectural you know, heritage that we all have inherited. I have one last question for you. Um, it might be a tough one because we didn't pre-talk about it. <laughs> but it seems like a lot of what you guys design relies heavily on skilled people to execute it and the ability to get um, materials you know, either fabricated or made. Um, a lot of your work has a lot of detail in it that requires really skilled craftsmen, either a really skilled carpenter or a really skilled, you know, plasterer or something like that, like a real Renaissance tradesperson. And it seems to me that that's really kind of going away. Hmm. So do you, A, think that's true, that we're losing a little bit of that ability to execute? And two, do you... How do you think that's going to affect your ability to produce or design these buildings? Right. Well, um, if we didn't have those highly skilled craftspeople, none of the things that we're drawing could get realized. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about architecture. As an architect, you don't build it yourself. You really need to have those um, people who can do it. And thankfully, in New England, we continue to find that we have those people. In fact, I feel like we're blessed with this amazing craft tradition here um, and an amazing collection of builders, contractors, and craftspeople who, who are an integral part of making the buildings that we draw. Mm -hmm. um, without them, obviously, they wouldn't happen. But um, so, uh, you know, I think now we have that. Um, I don't feel that's been lost. And when we need to do something challenging, there always seems to be someone in New England who knows exactly how to pull it off. And we really love working with contractors 
in New England because we feel like every time we do a new project, we learn something new. Mm-hmm. So we really rely on that conversation with the contractor and the craftspeople to kind of realize the the drawings, mm-hmm. the designs we're generating. You know, we, we see that as just such an incredibly important part of the, of the larger team. Um, as far as the future, uh, this firm is a supporter of the North Bennett Street School. Mm-hmm. And that's a unique institution in Boston, which continues to produce, I think, very skilled um, craftspeople in various trades uh, who then go out into the world and are sometimes the people we hire to do the work that we're doing mm-hmm. because they understand how to cut a molding or how you know certain pieces of wood need to go together. Or um, So, you know, I think institutions like that hopefully will keep that, that uh, skill set in place and uh, um, I also think there's been a shift in you know this kind of locavore movement of people interested in that again Mm -hmm. and so I I think there are people out there seeking it and trying to learn about it themselves even if they aren't students at the North Mm -hmm. Bennett Street School so so I'm very uh, optimistic about the future and there being <laughs> and people out there to continue to help all of us kind of realize the the designs that are coming out of this office. I just am interested because it seems like there has been a little bit of a lack maybe in the last 15, 20 years of people. It's just a little harder to find people, but... People are very busy now, yeah. so that is a challenge. <laughs> well, hopefully it will be exactly as you predicted, and we will have a new influx of uh, very right. skilled carpenters coming into their own in the next two years Good. or longer. Maybe some of them will be women. That would be exciting. That would be. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for talking, to me, talking yeah. to me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it and inviting me to your lovely office in downtown Boston. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and talk a little bit about the firm and and uh, architecture. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This podcast was sponsored by Hawthorne Builders. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Until next time.